Now, when, when I hear Spanish or French or even uh, English in the Ohio County dialect, I feel like I can kind of follow along a little bit, a little bit, because I've heard it more. But that can be anything. I want a fact checker on that. No, that's a tre- tremendous the way God has, has gifted and the discipline you have put into learning and having God use you in that way. And what sounds, huh? I mean, the world that God created, may the nations, may the nations be glad. Let's open in prayer before we get into Luke chapter 18. Heavenly Father, may you be glorified in all that is done. Your name is great. Uh, We praise you. Um, May every one of us sincerely examine our own hearts and not say as we are tempted, oh, I know a guy like that, or I know this is a problem for somebody else, but that we would identify ourselves in this parable and that we would identify where we stand with you and that we would see our only hope is submitting and crying out to the mercy of the God of the universe. May that be true of us today. In your name, amen. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew 18, um, and we'll be getting into this text, I'm going to say this, the, the pardoning of prisoners is part of every outgoing governor or president's uh, work. There are few that do not pronounce, it might be a few or it might be very many, but there are few outgoing governors or presidents that do not pardon a few famous ones in our country's history would be in, in September of 1974, Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon just a month after uh, he was impeached and resigned, and Gerald Ford got a lot of blowback for that. It's a little quick. And uh, he said politically, years later he said, politically that really surprised me, but I don't think should have. Another famous one is Andrew Johnson on Christmas Day of 1868. He pardoned virtually all Confederate supporters, and it it got him run out of office. He was never elected president in the first place. He was the vice president under Lincoln, and he never was elected president again. He got a lot of blowback from that. And then in 1977, Jimmy Carter pardoned all draft dodgers from the Vietnam War era, uh, including my uncle, who was on an extended vacation in Canada at the time, and uh, he moved back to Colorado after that. Um, so what does a pardon do? What does a pardon accomplish? We can think politically, or we can think, um, you know, in our, in our justice system, what does a pardon do? Well, it declares one of two things. Either it declares that you are not really guilty, you are wrongly imprisoned, you are wrongly uh, condemned, and so you're going to get a, a pardon, you're going to be let free um, because you are unjustly imprisoned. Uh, and then the, the other one might be, the second one might be that you really are guilty. You really did the crime for which you are condemned. But because of your good behavior, we're going to let you out a, a small number of people. And there's always extenuating circumstances with that. So it's kind of a, a your behavior change plus a compassionate person brings a pardon. So for us here today, we've made the decision to come to this church service What and why and who does God pardon? Most people automatically, we kind of naturally as humans think that 
that the pardon of God is similar to the legal system pardon, that either one, I'm innocent and I don't deserve punishment. And, and maybe you're here saying that today. Hey, you know, I might have done a few little things, but I'm not really guilty. So that might be what some people think. Or two, other people might think, well, I really am guilty, but by working hard or doing better, I can receive or even earn God's pardon. So the question, that's the title of the sermon, how to go home justified, begins with the question, whom does God vindicate? Or whom does God pardon? That's a question we're going to seek to answer in the text today. And the, the central and main point of the message is this, that humility before God and confidence in his mercy, not on one's own merit, brings acceptance, or we will investigate justification from God. So I'll read that one more time. Humility before God and confidence in his mercy, not on one's own merit, brings acceptance from God. And it outlines pretty simply, we've got these two guys, and they have two prayers, and have two distinct results. So let's start in verse 10. And that says, two men went up, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, it usually says, you know, they went up to the temple because the temple, for those who have been there, is up on a mount. It's up on a a hill, on a rise. And so it's always they go up to the temple and they went down to their house. It's almost always the way it's worded in Scripture. And um, they're going to a normal prayer times. Um, Acts chapter 2 kind of talks about a a 9 a.m. prayer time. Uh, The first verse of Acts chapter 3 talks about a 3 o'clock prayer time. This could be corresponding with our morning and evening prayers. And and most of the serious Jews living in Jerusalem would be going to pray at those times. They might shut the store they are part of. They might put up the animals that they're working with or the woodworking that they're doing or whatever. And they would try to get to those prayer times as much as possible. And these two men go there as well. Uh, With the Pharisee here... We, if you have been churched at all, or even if you live in the, in the time that we live in, if you hear the word Pharisee, that almost always has a negative connotation. Uh, we think a legalist, a snob, a, a self-righteous person. Um, but, it, but if you were living in Israel at that time, you would understand that if you hear the word Pharisee, this would be someone that would be very well thought of in Jewish society. This would be a person that is anti-Rome. You know, Rome at this time was controlling Israel. And um, the, the Jewish people hated it, and the Pharisees hated it as well, so they'd be anti-Rome, so you would like the Pharisees for that. Uh, the Pharisees knew the Old Testament scriptures. They were pious. They were separated from those who wallowed in sin. They were against those that wanted to sin and live just like the, the Romans did. And so there's a lot to be commended for this Pharisee. Um, They became very prominent in the intertestamental time. If you think of the end of Malachi, I think Malachi was written in 396 BC. Um, From the time of the end of Malachi to the time of John the Baptist, we have no word from God. We have, we have, and so they've had prophets speaking and they've had priests speaking and they've had some of their kings speaking on behalf of God for, for centuries and centuries and centuries. And we have about 400 years of nothing from God, no, no verbal word. And so the Pharisees were ones that were really looked up to at that time and rose to prominence in that time. Um, They should be, I put down here, they should be the hero of the story. 
the original audience would be reading or hearing this and be saying, okay, I know who the hero is now. It's the Pharisee. This is how we would think of maybe someone who is a deacon and on the school board or someone who is a, the mayor of, of your town or village and he's also a Sunday school teacher. That's how they would be thinking at that time. And then we have our, our tax collector. And most of us know this would be the, the most hated profession. They would purchase their franchise, if you will, from the Roman government. Um, they would keep a portion of their taxing. And um, they would be Jewish, uh, Jews nationally. They were seen as aiding Rome and thieves. And if you could picture it this way, uh, most of us don't enjoy paying taxes. Uh, we enjoy many of the benefits that we get from paying taxes, but we don't enjoy paying taxes. So it's, it's one thing if you get a tax bill for $5,000 and you're thinking, how am I going to pay this? And look at the tax bracket that I used to be in or look at the way, you know, when taxes were originally set up, there was this kind of percentage and it's ballooned to this and how am I going to pay this? And it's frustrating. And there's numbers that you can call and there's experts that you can enlist and pay to help you. Um, there's some recourse that you have, even if it's an imperfect system. But if you're living at that time and a guy shows up at your door or two guys or three guys and they say, hey, your tax bill this year is this much. And you say, no, 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 no. Last year I only paid this much. I don't care. And they're taking a bigger cut than they should. And you go and complain to somebody else and they're not listening to you. And you say, okay, well, I think there's an office over here I can go talk to. Nobody's going to listen to you there. It was basically a, a racket that you couldn't do anything about. And the tax collectors... They just kept a portion of the money. That's how, they, that's how they paid themselves. That's how they made their income. So they're making their wealth on the backs of their countrymen while working for the invading army. You can see how hated they would be. Um, often connected in scriptures with sinners and prostitutes. They'd be kind of put in those kind of categories in people's minds. We should be thinking uh, abortion doctor or or drug dealer, or immoral church leader, or crooked politician. This is what we should be thinking. So we've got this, the, the one guy, the Pharisee, that we're, we should kind of be thinking, if we're thinking as the first century audience would be, we should be thinking, um, this, is, this is the mayor, the patriot, veteran, Sunday school teacher. And on the other hand, we have the cheating traitor who's taking our country down. So if we're thinking like them, this is our thinking right now. We've got the Pharisee, and we've got the tax collector, until they begin to pray. And verse 11 says this. It says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, here's some interesting things about this Pharisee. I think we, we need to recognize a few things. He, he really does three things that, that I think in the, in the Christian culture south would be equal to saving faith. And, and the first one is that, he, is that he recognizes God. The second one is that he is moral. And the third one is that he is religious. But look here how he recognizes God at the beginning of verse 11. It says, he prayed, God, I thank you. So right from the get-go, he is recognizing the good hand of God upon his life. And it's, and it's not that unusual of a prayer at the beginning. Uh, I found a, a prayer, a, a standard, fairly standard Jewish prayer in the Talmud, which is the, the commentary, if you will, on the Old Testament. It would be the written commentary that they would have at this time. And I saw this prayer, and this is not a prayer that we, that we would certainly pray, but just listen to this very short prayer from a Pharisee. And it says this, Thank you, God, that I am not a slave 
Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile. And thank you, God, that I am not a woman. Now, again, this is not a prayer that we would pray today. But here he is. He's recognizing God in a pretty, pretty arrogant way as we will, as we will go on to see. He's also, he's also moral. Look at this list of things that he says. Hey, I don't want to be an extortioner. I don't want to be unjust. I don't want to be an adulterer. I don't want to be like this tax collector. Well, in a sense, what he's saying are good things. He's saying, I want to be moral. I do not want to do things that God uh, hates. Um, you might, if you had a list like this, you might say, hey, who would you, who would you like to be married to, this tax collector or this Pharisee? Who would you like your daughter to date? You know, I, I would like my daughter to date a person that's, that's not an adulterer, that's just, that doesn't steal money from people. So in a sense, these are, these are good moral things that he is listing right here. But he's starting to go off the rails when he's saying things like, instead of thank you for keeping me from this, he's saying, I'm so glad I am not this. He's recognizing himself and his personal achievement rather than God's enabling grace. And a section and a verse that he would do well to think about would be uh, just a chapter earlier in Luke 17 where it talks about unworthy servants. And that parable where the unworthy servant says, hey, are you, Jesus says, hey, are you going to be excited if your servant does what he is supposed to do? No, they are just doing what they ought. They are doing their duty. That's what's expected of them. So not, God, look how amazing I am because I don't do evil. He should be recognizing God's good hand and does not. So he's, he recognizes God. He's moral. He's also at religious. He has some system to what he does. He says in verse 12, he says, I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So I'm doing some things here. Now, uh, uh, the Jewish people are only required to do one fast per year on Yom Kippur. And for many of you that might be interested in the Jewish calendar, that was just this past week. So on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that's really the only required fast. Uh, many would fast more than that. Many would fast once a week and a select few. There's some some uh, extra-biblical writing at this time that would recognize some people would fast twice a week, often on Mondays and Thursdays might be the day. Some people would recognize and say, hey, these are times when um, there's extra market, you know, there's people are selling stuff a lot more, there's a lot more activity. And a lot of times they would be doing that to be recognized themselves. They might put ashes on their head. Um, they would like to bring attention to themselves. We know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, don't be like this group over here who wants to make much of themselves. They want to go into the marketplace and be seen by others. But when you fast, do it quietly, wash your face. You're doing this for God or are you doing this for the crowds? You know that from Matthew chapter 6. But he says, hey, I, I fast twice a week, not just once a week, not just once a year. You know, that'd be no food and no drink from dawn to dusk. And then he talks about tithing here. It's interesting, he says, um, I give tithes of all that I get. So he's saying, not just on my income. You know, I'm, I make an income and I tithe 10% on that. It's, it's more than that. He says, I'm tithing on all that I get. And so both in my income and in the things that I purchase, I'm, I'm getting a tithe. I, I'm paying a tithe on it. So if, if someone uh, gives me um, a side of beef, I'm going to lop off 10% of that and give that as a gift back to God. If I buy something at a store... I'm going to tithe on that is what he's saying here because what if the person that I bought it from at the store didn't tithe on it and it's not given to God? So he tithes on everything that he touches. 
We could get into some serious dollars and some serious effort and some serious math as he figures these things out. And charitably, we could say he is so serious about obeying God. But the more we look at this text, we're saying he's getting so serious about justifying himself before God. Rather than recognizing God's character and enabling grace, he appears to be saying, look how good I am five times in this little prayer. He says, I, I, I. There's also, and the ESV translates um, the Pharisee standing by himself, but some of the translations that you have are going to say the Pharisee praying to himself. And it doesn't mean that he's praying silently because clearly it's a verbal prayer. It's It's an out loud prayer, but it's almost like he's praying about himself or he's praying focused on himself. He's kind of saying, God, we have a contract or a deal. I do this and therefore I'm righteous. And, and I want us to think about this. Uh, he recognizes God and he's moral and he's religious. And to many in our world, that's a Christian. If you went door to door, in Owensboro, Kentucky, and you said, uh, I've got someone and they're moral. I've got someone and they recognize God. And I've got someone that does some religious things. Are they a Christian? You're, you're, I'm going to say 90%, 80% of the people in Owensboro, Kentucky would say that, that looks like a Christian to me. And maybe even many of us here would say, okay, he's doing some things God wants. He's not just living however he wants. He's not doing really awful things. He says, yeah, God is over this. I, I'm, not, I'm not the God myself. Okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. That's Christianity. You're good to go. And I think that's part of the reason that, that Jesus sets up this parable like us. He can make some caricature that's way out in the weeds, but he has one here that's saying, and, and pushing us to say, How am I defining Christianity? How am I determining who is right with God? How am I determining in my own heart where I stand with Almighty God? Because the human desire and tendency is to do stuff and to earn it, much like the pardoned prisoner. I'm doing better, therefore God is happy with me. But what does God say about it? Well, we have the two following parables that we don't have time to get into, but the two following parables deal with what? Two things. One, simple faith. We've got the parable of let the children come unto me. So simple faith is focused. And then the parable right after that is the parable of the rich young man or the rich young ruler, where Jesus is saying, where's your heart? Where's your heart? Where's your heart? You've done all these things. You say you followed the law so well. You've done this, you've done this, you've done this. And Jesus says, I know your heart. Where's your heart? This is what you need to do, rich young ruler, to show that your heart really is with me. And the rich young ruler went away sad. So we're getting some push here. We're not not done with it. We're getting some push here saying actions are not enough. Actions are not even a start. Got some push for simple faith, a simple heart for God. So that's the prayer of the Pharisee. Now let's look at the other prayer, the prayer of the tax collector, and that's in verse 13. It says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector is probably near the court of Gentiles, which would be the farthest area on the Temple Mount, the farthest area from the Holy of Holies. Um, he, he is undoubtedly Jewish, 
but he is as far away as he can be. He's beating his breast, which in Scripture is usually a thing that women do. Uh, I, I can only find one place in Scripture where a crowd or a group of men and women or a mixed group of people were pounding on their chest in contrition, and that would be in Luke 23, right after the crucifixion. Jesus dies on the cross, and the centurion says, surely this was a just man. And it says, then the crowd went away beating their breast, like beating their chest, saying, this, this was not right. This is not what should have happened. This is, he is more than some mere criminal. This is, what have we done? And that kind of contrition is what the tax collector is doing. And he says here, be merciful to me. Well, that Greek word is a word for propitiate. Or we get the, the big theological term propitiation it's to propitiate. It's to be favorable. J.C. Ryle, a theologian from 100 years back, says this, Mercy is the first thing we must ask for in the day we begin to pray. I'm going to read that one more time. Mercy is the first thing we must ask for in the day we begin to pray. This tax collector is saying, I don't have the answers. I have lived a life of rebellion against God, and I throw myself on the mercy of Almighty God. Show me mercy. Show me your favor. I deserve nothing. Show me your mercy. We know the idea of propitiation is the idea of payment. God's divine wrath placed on Jesus. We could look at a lot of places in Scripture, but Romans 3.25 clearly says this. It says, talking about Jesus, and it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that, that idea of payment. God put forward as propitiation by his blood. So we're talking death on the cross. And I know I've shared this with you before, but if you don't come to church very often and you're looking at this and you're thinking, by his blood. And I've had multiple people have told me when they came to Christ, a stumbling block for them was they say, we'd go to church and this group of people in church would be talking about blood and dying and what is wrong with these people? And may God open our eyes to show we could see an Old Testament need for sacrifice in the sacrificial system where a lamb would be killed when I sinned, a lamb or a dove or something would be killed depending on the sin and the circumstances. And there'd be this visible representation of my sin placed on this lamb and killed. And it's a, it's a picture of, of the sacrifice that's going to come in Jesus. And, but if you were doing that with your family, you'd be seeing this and saying, whoa, my sin is a big deal. And it's the same with this verse here in Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. We see, sing songs about his blood and we sing songs about his death. We sing songs about his resurrection because none of us can resurrect. And none of us can die for another. We could die for another in a war. We could die for another and save someone from being murdered. But we can't die a sinless savior for sinful mankind. Only Christ could do that. And it says his propiti propitiation by his blood to be received by works. No, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So, so this plan was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He's basically saying, hey, God has been merciful and he has withheld his judgment, but he will not withhold forever. I think this cry in Luke by the tax collector is pretty similar 
to the cry of David in Psalm 51. And, and you can turn with me to Psalm 51. We're going to look at a few verses there. Or you can just listen as I read. But think of the cry of the tax collector and think of the cry of David after the sin with Bathsheba. Um, he's caused Uriah to be killed. Um, he's committed adultery. Bathsheba's husband is dead. She is now pregnant. Um, he doesn't see his sin as a problem until Nathan the prophet goes and tells him the story about this guy who had one little lamb and a guy with a bunch of sheep came and stole that lamb. And David says, whoever this guy is, he should die. And Nathan says to him, you're that man. So David writes this psalm in Psalm 51. And he sounds so similar to the tax collector when he says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You notice he does not say, hey, because I'm doing better or because I'm sorry or because I'm not nearly as bad as this guy over here. He says, no, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. And then he says in verse two, wash me thoroughly from my sin, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And we can think, oh, the sin against Uriah, you killed him. Oh, the sin against Bathsheba, you committed adultery with her and you're in this position of power. And we don't know the whole, all the circumstances, but you're in this position of power. You sinned against them, but he's saying, hey, I understand, David is saying, I centrally and, and primarily and from the heart sinned against Almighty God and only he can wash my sin clean. Obviously, we would encourage and know that he would need to confess his sin to others, humans that he has harmed as well. But he recognizes, I need mercy. And that's what the tax collector recognized as well. A question that we have to ask this text is used often by those in our world that claim Christ, but would say, um, profess Christ, live how, he, live how you want. God understands that you are weak and sinful, and he's not going to make a big deal about it. Uh, this, this passage is used often by that saying, hey, the uh, tax collector was living an evil, horrible, anti-God life, and he came to Christ and he could keep doing his thing. But that nothing could be farther from the truth right here. We could, we could look at um, writing all over scripture. And we could look at, at what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. When he says, hey, should we, can we go on sinning that grace may abound? That grace might be abundant? So can I, can I sin? And when I sin, God's grace is covering it. And so I can just sin and sin and sin and live however I want. And there are those that use this passage in Luke 18 to push that. But what does Paul say in Romans chapter 12? He says, can I do this? By no means. We, we've died to sin. How can we continue in it any longer? We, we don't want to have this any part of who we are. And we have to understand in a, in a parable like this, we're not given every detail. A parable, most parables have one central meaning. A few of them might have two, and I, and I think a few of them actually have three. But by and large, par parables have one central meaning. And so every detail is not given to us. But I think it's pretty clear from the text and from God's word that that is not okay, this easy believism or this cheap grace. Uh, I've got a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who 
um, a German theologian who so easily, he was traveling on the eastern uh, side of the United States, even during the beginning of World War II. He's a, a German citizen, uh, had an older brother that died in World War I. He's this brilliant theologian. All kinds of his friends were saying, hey, stay in the United States. Things are safe. He's traveling up and down uh, the, the eastern side of the United States. He actually goes and spends quite a bit of time in Cuba, and uh, he's ministering down there. He's like, I just can't do it. I got to go back. Goes back to Germany. He's a part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. He's imprisoned. He's in prison for quite a while. He had a, his family was very educated, very powerful, very wealthy. Um, and so he kind of was living out the war in, in prison. But he was killed, I think, a month before the end of World War II in Europe, which would have probably taken him to die in April-ish. I guess, of 1945. Um, but here's this quote that he have. Here, here's this brilliant theologian who's going to die, and he has in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that many of us have read. And he says this, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is grace without, the, without discipleship, grace without the cross, Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. And he says, costly grace. That's grace saying, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. I want to follow Christ. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble it is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. That's the call to us. It's a call to the tax collector. It's a call that Christ makes even in this parable. So those are our two guys, our Pharisee and our tax collector. And there's the two guys, prayer, our Pharisee and our tax collector. And now we have our results in verse 14, what does Christ say? He says, I tell you, I've told this story. I tell you, this man, this tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. And at that point, the audience would be saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. The patriot veteran who taught my kids Sunday school class as opposed to this evil traitor to our country. What, what do you have going on here? What has the idea and the wording of justification? It says this man went down to his house justified. And we know that the term justification is, is bigger than mere forgiveness, although forgiveness is huge. Forgiveness is kind of half of justification. Forgiveness would be God lifting the sentence of condemnation upon Christians for their sins through the death of Christ. And forgiveness is huge. When I can forgive another who sinned against me, that is huge. When, when someone forgives me when I've sinned against them, that is huge. When the God of the universe forgives sinners, incredible. But this is more than forgiveness. Now, the, the doctrine of justification is not fully developed in the Gospels. Um, Christ has not yet died and resurrected, so it, it can't be fully developed at this point, although there's pointers to it and pushers to it in the Old Testament and throughout the Gospels as well. But truly, we need to understand it as the gift of a, of a new one-time standing before God. It is being forgiven, but it's also being imputed. And the idea of being imputed is the idea of being credited to your account. So it's imputed righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness imputed 
and put upon and credited his child. It is not merely enabled or improved moral character. There are those within greater Christianity that push justification as just a type of improved moral character. But who had the better moral character in this parable? It's a really good passage to argue with someone like that or discuss in a kind way with, with someone that believes that. Who had the best moral character? Well, it was the Pharisee. The Pharisee wins hands down in, in good moral character. He's doing the good things. But he was not the one that was justified. He truly did not have Christ's righteousness credited to his account. I think it speaks to three things, this, this um, verse, this first half of the verse, when Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. I think it speaks to three things. One, I think it speaks to human sinfulness and guilt and need for a rescuer. Uh, I, was, I had the opportunity to share Christ with someone about a week and a half ago. And they're not someone that would normally listen, but there were some extenuating circumstances. And so I've shared Christ with them before. Um, but I, I haven't for probably close to 10 years and I was able to share with them. And when I started sharing Christ, they actually listened, which, which I had prayed about it a lot. And actually some in here had, had prayed about as well, um, that they would even listen for one minute and, uh, and they did. And I praise the Lord for that, but they stopped me very, very quickly. And they said, you know, this whole sin thing. And they said it a little bit differently. This basically, this whole sin thing, you're kind of, you're, you're stopping me there. And I think we might be stopping this here because um, I have a relative and they're a really good person. And uh, someone said to them, hey, are you saved? And they responded to this person. Why would I need to get saved? I had a good faith my whole life and I'm a good person. You don't, you shouldn't say that to me. And so this person that I was sharing Christ with said, is anybody better than this relative of mine? And they had the right answer. And I think that's going to be my answer as well. And uh, I tried to talk a little bit more and we kind of hit some walls and they didn't want to talk anymore, but they did. They opened it up that we could potentially talk again. And I, and I praise the Lord for that. And for you in here that are believers, I think most of us can readily say, I'm a sinner. I fall short of the glory of God. Guilty, guilty, guilty. But most of us, many of us prior to coming to Christ would say, I think I'm actually, I was actually doing okay. They, at that the pre-Christ time in your life, you might say, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, at that time you would have thought, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not that bad. I've, I, you know, I, I know someone who's really bad, but I'm not that bad. They probably echo, most of us could echo what Jeff Hausner shared, that he thought, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I've, I mean, if anybody's going to get there, I, I, you know, I'm, I've got a, a better than 50-50 chance of getting there because sin is such a sticking point. Well, one of the things we must recognize, and you might be in here today and you don't know if you're a believer or not, but the thing we have to recognize is that every person in this world is guilty, is a sinner, stands before a holy God. Romans 3, we looked at verse 25 earlier. Romans 3, starting in verse 22, talks about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So not from our own works, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Then it says, for there is no distinction. So we can't go in this room and say, oh, she's really good. He's really good. Ooh, there's one really lousy over there. It says there's, there's no distinction. This, this is the plan that God set forth. This is the, the position of every human. And then it says in verse tw- um, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us in this room. 
Every single one of us in Owensboro, in Kentucky, in, our greater, in the greater world, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. Here's this word justified again, declared righteous in the eyes of God by his grace as a gift. Through what? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We like to think we can earn it. We like to look at that and we like to say, oh, um, I'm, I'm pretty moral or I do some religious things or I recognize the hand of God. And we could go around it again. So many people just in, in our town and they would say, yep, Christian. And this verse right here is reminding us, no, we're justified by his grace as a gift. There is no earning that can happen at all. And that's what we're learning from this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Romans chapter 4 says that Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. So it speaks to human sinfulness and guilt and need for a rescuer. And if you are here today and you're saying, I have not trusted Christ, you are guilty before a holy God. You might say, well, I'm only, I'm only nine. I'm only 10. I'm, a, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in middle school. I'm in high school. Come on, you know. Every single one of us stands before a holy God and is guilty, personally guilty. We are guilty in Adam because we're part of the human race and we are personally guilty and have our own sin as well. But it speaks, this parable speaks to that because it says one went home justified and the other one didn't. So, so one is good with God and the other one is not. So I think the second thing it speaks to, it speaks against universalism. And that's another one. If you just go, if you go at work and you talk with someone and they might go to a church somewhere, they might have grown up in church, might read their Bible some. So many people I run into believe in a form of universalism saying like, we're all going to get to heaven. We can just get there on our own way. Or, you know, you might be a little here and a little there, but you know, basically you think there's a God and you think you can do some good things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're good. You, you affirm the Bible. You affirm that there is a historical Jesus a historical reason for Easter. Yep, you're, you're good to go. This passage speaks pretty hard against universalism because it's saying one is right, one is going to heaven, one is justified, and the other is not. The other, as, as Jeff referenced, is going to hell unless he turns and repents. And that's true of every person in this room without Christ. Third thing it does is it, it is the central reason for the Reformation. We kind of live at a time, maybe not so much in our circles, but in greater Christianity, there's a big push and has been, eh, especially for the last 25 years, kind of like, was that Reformation really necessary? Is that Reformation really carry any weight? Is that Reformation really anything that needed to happen? And truly, this doctrine of justification was really the central reason for the Reformation. People like to redefine it, make it mean other things or see us as not needing it. Um, I'd encourage you to do some more reading on your own about that. But um, three things this parable speaks to really well. And, and then in, in the second half of verse 14, um, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He makes a statement for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It fits well with the parable in Luke 14, the parable of the wedding feast, where he says, hey, take the worst seat. Let them exalt you. Don't be the one that exalts yourself. And it's easy for us to hear this and to say, yeah, yeah, we should do that. But every one of us in our own ways is tempted to take that top seat at the wedding. 
Not literally to go to try to sit with the bride and groom, although maybe some of you might to do that. But we're tempted in other ways to put ourselves first, to make ourselves the hero of the story, to make ourselves the, the winner of this and the, and the victor in this and to subtly or unsubtly put other people down. He threw himself on the mercy of God. And the first century audience is shocked and we should be as well. And we should be asking ourselves, am I this guy or am I this guy? Maybe you might be saying here, I don't even know if this applies to me. I think it'd be healthy to, to read verse 9 that he starts the parable with us and, and ask ourselves, where am I in this? So what is the purpose of this parable? It says in verse 9, he also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and two, they treated others with contempt. So they, they, uh, the people that were listening were people that trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated other people poorly. So they trusted themselves, they thought they were righteous, they treated others with contempt. And I think it's interesting here. How did he treat the tax collector with contempt? As I read the text... It doesn't record anything that he talked with the tax collector. It doesn't record anything that he said anything to the tax collector. He certainly would not have been praying afar off at the temple mount. He'd be praying up close. So he's not going to be over the, by the court of the Gentiles. So how did he treat him with contempt? It's how he prayed and how he thought about him. So it's saying if, if we exalt ourselves and put other people down, even in our thinking... We're treating others with contempt when I exalt myself or when I say, oh, that guy or her or really, really, this really. I am treating others with contempt and this parable is directed at me. In a sense, that treating with contempt is the self-righteousness of saying, look how great I am. So some question, a question I might have, do we think with pride or superiority of others? Second one, do I trust in my goodness? I, I want to read a passage from Amos, um, and you can just listen or you can look with me. It's in Amos chapter 4. Um, Amos, Amos was written, uh, let's see, Assyria came down and took, took out the northern kingdom in uh, 722. Amos was a farmer in Judah, the southern two tribes, and so sometime in that, between the early 600s and the, and the early 700s, Amos proclaimed. And so he's on his farm, he's taking care of his sheep and his orchard in, in Judah. And the evil neighbors, neighbors to the north were not following God, that's Israel. And um, you could wonder if, you know, happily taking care of his flocks and his trees was pretty nice. I have no idea. Seems pretty nice. And God says, you know what, I've got a job for you. You're going to share my message to some ungodly people that don't want to hear it. And I'm guessing there was some trepidation with Amos, but he said, okay, yeah. Oh, and by the way, you're not going to be sharing it to your fellow countrymen there in Judah. You're crossing the border. You're going where evil is really, really evil. And so Amos goes, and then, and then you have to give messages like this. He's speaking to the, the homemakers in Samaria. He says to this group of ladies, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. So he's starting strong, starting in a way that they would love to hear, right? It's like being called a cow. Um, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria. You who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, 
who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And there actually is some evidence that when the Assyrian army came down to Israel and dragged them away, many of them were chained up or even tied to wagons and dragged out, saying you're going to be dragged out. And so many, and many were going to be killed that almost like the chunks of meat that are left of you could fit on a fish hook and you could go fishing with them. So he's, he is making a, a serious warning. Like this is not a light warning. He is saying, you're going to die and die ugly if you don't listen to the word of God. And, and what, what's he condemning them for? He says, you shall go through the breaches. So they're going to they're come through the walls of your city. They're going to break them open and they're going to drag your carcasses out. That's what it's going to look like for you in the future. Each one straight ahead and you shall be cast into Harmon and nobody knows what Harmon is. He says in verse four, come to Bethel and transgress. It'd be places where the, where the calves were worshipped and they tried to separate the worship uh, in Bethel and Dan from the worship that rightfully should have been done in Jerusalem. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings and publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. What was Israel doing? They were, they were giving polluted worship. They did not have a heart or a simple faith in God, but they were saying, I'm going to still do some things, some religious things. I'm going to recognize God. I'm going to do some moral things to us, at least not as bad as the countries around us. And I'm going to do some religious things and God better be pleased. And what does God, God through Amos say? They're going to drag you from that area with hooks and fish hooks. You're dead. Do you realize how I hate false worship? And we could look at Malachi and we could look at other places, but every single one of us in this room needs to say, where do I stand like Amos's audience? Am I doing religious things or am I simply throwing myself on the mercy of Almighty God and trusting in him and what he has done for my salvation? Isaiah is a, was a prophet around the time of Amos, probably a little bit before. And he says the famous prophecy in Isaiah 53 verse 11 He's talking about Jesus, and he says, doesn't say it's in about 700 years, but in about 700 years, this Jesus, he will bear their iniquities. He will take our sin upon himself. And then we have a, another verse, and this is the last one we're going to look at, and this is in Luke chapter 2. Another one that kind of, I'm going to say it, it sets the stage for the rest of the book, and the rest of the book should be read with this thinking in mind, in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, we have Amos 4 saying, I'm going to drag you out of here. You're sinners. And Isaiah 53 saying, but one is coming who's going to bear their iniquities. And we have Luke chapter 2, verse 10, setting up near the beginning of the book, sets our thinking. And it says this in verse 10. And the angel said to them, this is to the shepherds, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We have sin and sin and sin and a promised one is going to take that sin and here he is right here. He is a Savior pushing the person I was sharing Christ to, pushing all of us to say, I am a sinner, I need a Savior. And he is not just... A guy afar off, he is Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the promised one, and he is the Lord. 
He should be and must be the ruler of our life. No cheap grace, costly grace. I'm going to follow him through thick and thin and difficulty. And he loves broken people like me because I'm calling out in mercy to him. He loves those with a broken and contrite heart. So unlike a presidential pardon where it might be proven that a person is unjustly imprisoned, we are all justly imprisoned and guilty of sin. And two, unlike a presidential pardon where a person's good behavior aids in granting their pardon, God vindicates those who are humbly confident in his mercy, not on their own merit. You can go home today justified. Trust him today. If you have some questions, come talk to me. Come talk to a multitude of people in here. You can go home today justified. Christ's righteousness credited to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe that you died for sinners like us. We cry out to your mercy. We do not deserve it. We cannot earn it. We cannot just do a little better. We cannot do some religious things. We cannot be moral. Lord, we do nothing but plead the blood of Christ, cry out to your mercy, and rest in you. Lord, may the one in here that might not trust in you, trust in you now. In Jesus' name, amen.